And Father, we are indeed thankful that you are a God who speaks, that you are a God who calls. And we pray, therefore, that you would give us open ears to hear your word this morning, open hearts to the movement of the Spirit within our lives, that you would even touch my, coal, my lips with the burning coal of your holiness and the power of the Spirit that I might proclaim your word as you say I must. Let us hear with earnestness, with eagerness, and with meekness as we want to be conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the offspring of Abraham. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago when I began what seems to be in some ways a lifelong study on this Scottish pastor named Robert Murray McShane, I had no idea where to start. And in God's providence, I had an advisor that knew where to start. And so he said, Jordan, if you want to understand McShane, you have to understand Chalmers. Now, you might not know the name Thomas Chalmers, but in the 18th century Scottish Presbyterian world, the best-known, most popular preacher in all the land was this man named Thomas Chalmers. His reputation and renown was so great in Great Britain that his popularity and power and influence rivaled that of the monarch at the time. So great was Thomas Chalmers. Now, the reason Chalmers is important for those of us in McShane's studies is Chalmers was McShane's mentor. What Chalmers thought, he impressed upon McShane, not just theologically, his ministerial pattern, life of piety and personal holiness. It was though McShane kind of came to embody all of Chalmers' passions about the gospel ministry, and so he was right, my advisor. To understand McShane, you have to understand Chalmers. And the reason I tell you that is in a very real sense, to understand the Bible, you must understand this man named Abram whose name will soon be changed to Abraham. Without knowledge of Abram, you don't know how to read the Gospels right, especially Matthew and John. If you don't understand Abram, you won't be able to make any sense of Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Hebrews. It's not a hyperbolic statement to say, if you don't understand Abram, you will not fully understand the Gospel of Jesus Christ by which sinners are saved. you got to understand Abram to understand the whole storyline of Scripture. And so when we get over the next few months, because Abram dominates the storyline, his experience and immediate family uniquely, obviously in the rest of the book, but Abram in his own life all the way through chapter 24 of Genesis. And so kids, over the next few months, you're going to want to give unique attention to this man named Abram because you're going to begin then to understand why churches throughout the decades have sung, often in Sunday school, this song, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons, said Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. That actually is quite biblical. Maybe much more so than you might have realized. And students, you're going to want to pay attention to Abram for a variety of different reasons, not least of which is Abram, as we read earlier from Galatians 3, is called in Scripture the man of faith. How Abraham experiences God's grace in his life gives us a sense of how it ordinarily tends to go in the Christian life. You're going to see Abram, even in chapter 12, between this week and Lord willing next week, bounce back and forth between faith and fear. 
just as a ping pong ball might bounce back and forth over the net. So often, isn't it true that the Christian life is one of bouncing back and forth from intimate trust in God to struggling to believe that His promises will actually come to pass? So the theme that we're working towards this morning in our study is Abraham's faith to follow God into the unknown. And more acutely, what we're trying to rest our attention on this morning is what faith demands of God's children. Because the theme that we need to see is faith leads God's people to forsake everything to follow God. Faith means forsaking everyone and everything, if necessary, to follow God. And so we'll notice, first of all, Abram's family, then his failure, and thirdly, we will want to see his faith, because that's the point of chapter 12. But if you weren't with us last week, we left off in verse 9 of chapter 11. It was there that God had confused the languages of the people in Babel, thus scattering them throughout the world, dispersing them throughout the nations that He might fill the earth as He had long decreed and desired to do. And an early reader of Genesis might wonder then at the end of that section on Babel, has God's divine forbearance with the nations finally run out? Is He just going to reject the nations forever as He has now scattered them abroad? Well, our text today is going to tell us, no, He hasn't done that. He won't reject them forever, and it's going to tell us why not, but most acutely, how blessing is going to come to the nations, and it's going to come through one family, Abram's family. And look at verse 10 of chapter 11 as we begin to get to know his family. Moses says, These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpexod two years after the flood. So you remember back to chapter 10 that we talked about last week, how the table of nations in chapter 10 ended with these nations that came from Noah's firstborn son named Shem. And we said it was kind of odd. It was rather surprising that the table of nations ended with Shem because he's the firstborn son. You would expect that he and his descendants would be listed first. But we said the reason that Shem's there at the end is to place emphasis on his family line. Because it's even Shem that gets the emphasis on the blessing from his father Noah. If you just skip back even further to chapter 9, verse 26 and 27, notice again how it's Shem that gets the accent of blessing. Verse 26 of chapter 9, blessed be the Lord God, the God of Shem. It doesn't say the God of Japheth, the God of Ham, or even the God of Noah. It's the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So what we need to understand is that Shem gets the emphasis of blessing because it's through Shem's line that God is going to protect his promise that one is going to come to crush the head of the serpent. But if you flip back to chapter 11 now, in verse 10, you notice that Moses is narrowing our focus not just on Shem, but Shem's third son, this man named Arpexod. And if you just scan your way, your eyes through the remainder of this genealogy of Shem that gets us all the way to Abram, I think there are just two simple things that we want to point out by way of interest in chapter 11 before we do give our attention uniquely to Abram. The first thing you want to see is the average age of humanity decreasing. 
That's quite noticeable, isn't it? If you look at verse 10 and 11, and you're good with math, kids, what's 500 plus 100? 600. Shem lived 600 years. Now skip all the way down to the bottom. Verse 32, the days of Terah, Abram's father, were what? 205 years. There's a shrinking of the age of humanity. But uniquely also, you don't want to see the average age of humanity shrinking. You want to see the age of Abram's father, Terah, when he had children. Look at verse 26. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram. Now here's why that's significant. Two reasons. First, if you scan your eyes up, uh, you'll notice that the previous members of Shem's family had children much earlier. Look at verse 12. Arpaxad had lived 35 years, then he became a father. Verse 14, Shelah, 30 years. Verse 16, Aber, 34 years. Verse 18, Peleg, 30 years. Verse 20, Ru, 32 years. Verse 22, Serug, 30 years. Abram's grandfather, Nahor, verse 24, 29 years. And then Abram's father, Tehran, 70 years. It seems to be something of a harbinger for what Abram's going to experience in his own life. Because as Abram's waiting for offspring, a child, he's going to have to wait much longer than even 70 years, like his father, Terah. So skip down to verse 31. It sets us on the course for understanding the setting of what's getting ready to come in this paradigmatic calling of God in chapter 12. Verse 31, chapter 11, we're told Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So this is Abram's family. And now we want to see something of Abram's failure. In recent weeks, I've been reading this autobiography of a pastor who was incredibly influential on pastors in my parents' generation. And as these things tend to go, you know, I thought I knew something about him, and then you get into his autobiography, and you start asking yourself questions like, really? That happened to him? He said that? Or so-and-so brought that into his ministry? It's one of those things where you just realize you thought you knew a person, and then you hear him talk about his own life. And to some degree, I, I think Christians even feel that way about Abram here at the turning of chapter 11 to 12. You thought you knew a man. And then Jordan is saying, the text is saying, Abram failed. Now you say, where is the failure? You might look at your neighbor and say, wait, he said Abram failed. Where's the failure? I don't see a failure in the text. What's the failure he's talking about in the text? Well, look at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go. Now, if you happen to have a King James version in front of you, a New International version in front of you, or you see a footnote, which is probably in your ESV that I'm reading from, the Hebrew actually is better translated, the Lord had said to Abram. Not the Lord said to Abram, the Lord had said to Abram. Now, there was some time in the past that God had already said and uttered this call to Abram. And it didn't seem like Abram had actually followed God fully. Because if you understand the narrative, if it just says the Lord said to Abram, it seems that Abram hears God's call when he's in Haran, verse 31. But Genesis 15, 7 and Acts 7, verse 2 says God called Abram when he was in Ur of the Chaldeans. The call came earlier. 
And you'll notice, we just read it, that context, verse 31 of chapter 11, Abram had gotten up and gone. But did you see he meant to go to the land of Canaan? That's where he's supposed to go. But where did he settle? Into verse 31. In Haran. He didn't follow God all the way through at that point. You know, his father's name, Terah, it can be translated. It's kind of hard to understand exactly how to translate it, but it certainly can be translated delaying or loitering. Well, that's absolutely what Abram was doing here. He had followed God to a point, then he's delayed. He's loitering in Haran. And I wonder if some of you in here this morning have your own spiritual Haran, a place where you're delayed in following God's Word. Or you might be loitering in a place you ought not to be, paused and hesitating around a people you're not supposed to be near. I don't want to emphasize Abram's failure too much because certainly the accent of this passage and further biblical commentary on this passage is about his faith in following God, not Abram's failure, Abram's faith as he follows God. Because you wonder, as Abram is there in Ur of the Chaldeans, Scholars would tell us that Ur then would be in the land that became known as Babylon. It was a a place of wealth. It was a place of prominent significance and comfort. It was a place that was devoted to idolatry and worship of pagan gods. Uh, There Abram was, and then he hears this voice strike out, maybe in the night, maybe it was in the day. Uh, Strike out. That was totally unexpected. Where did this voice come from? Who is this Yahweh speaking to me? Go into the land that I will show you. Even Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, you can write this down and look at it later on. It says, Abram's father Terah served other gods. He was in the midst of an idolatrous family, surrounded by paganism, and here comes Yahweh. Go into the land I will show you. What must have been racing through Abram's mind when he first heard that call. And it's a call, if you notice, in the first three verses, it's full of commands, it's, it's full of promises. I'll just summarize them with two commands and three comforts. The first command, of course, is about leaving everything. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, uh, kids, if you could do such a thing in your Bible, you'd want to underline, italicize, bold, and make bigger the word go from. Uh, scholars would tell us this is a phrase that comes sometimes in Hebrew of a dativus ethicus, which rightly doesn't mean anything to you. But what you want to know is that it's emphasizing the strength and urgency and immediacy of the imperative. It's almost as though we need to hear Yahweh yelling, Go forth! Move out! Get going, Abram. That's how urgent it is. And it's an urgency about leaving everything, isn't it? Your family, your country, your kindred. The call to those of us in Christ is no different, is it not? And I increasingly wonder if many Christians in our somewhat civic Christian culture still here in the South, if honest examination was done on your own hearts, you might wonder, when was the last time I left something behind in following Christ? When was the last time I renounced a friendship, a relationship, in order to be faithful to Christ? When was the last time I renounced a privilege or a worldly blessing in order that I might conform to the image 
of Christ. It's a command about leaving everything. The second command is a command about blessing everyone. And you're not going to see it in our English translations. I don't know why this happens, but they all get it wrong. At the end of verse 2, what the ESV renders here is this, so that you will be a blessing. It's an imperative in Hebrew. It's a command, be a blessing. Abram, be a blessing. God's command to obedience always has this mission, be a blessing to everyone you come across. It's why when we often pray with our children at night before we go to bed, as I'm praying almost invariably, help them to be a blessing to their teachers at school tomorrow. Help them be a blessing to whoever they're going to visit tomorrow. Children are a blessing given to us for the Lord that are to be a blessing. Uh, But some of you in here even this morning need to recognize you must be a blessing. More often than not, instead of blessing, you gossip and grumble, complain and question when God's children, offspring of Abraham, are to be a blessing to all people. But he encloses, doesn't he, these commands with all kinds of promises, all kinds of comforts, as I'm calling them. And the first comfort is about God's presence in the land. You'll see again the end of verse 1. He says, go, Abram, to the land that I will show you. God doesn't just say, hey, get there and I'll meet you there. I'm going to go with you. He doesn't just send him along the way. He guides him along the way, with him every step that he might get to where he should be going. God's presence is with him. It's also a comfort about God's plan to bless the nations. How exactly is he going to do it? Well, you look at the beginning of verse 2 and the end of verse 3. God says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. Make your name great so you will be a blessing. The end of verse 3, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Everything that the citizens there at Babel wanted, God now, through sovereign grace, gives to Abram. They wanted a name. He gets the great name. They wanted power and fame. He gets the great nation. He's the one, Abram and his family, that's going to bring blessing to all peoples. And and interestingly, you want to make sure you notice it from the scripture reading we had earlier in Galatians chapter 3. Paul says this is the spirit preaching the gospel to Abraham. In you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why is that gospel? Why is that good news? Because it's not just going to belong to Israel. It's going to belong to all nations, all people groups. Every tribe, tongue, and language is going to get this blessing that's going to come through the seed of Abraham. And the third comfort is a comfort about protection from enemies. You'll notice as verse 3 begins, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. So God's people, ever since they were called and formed and fashioned into a community, have faced persecution, opposition, cursing, contempt from enemies. And God says, not only that I'm with you in the midst of such persecution and hardship, but I will bring such abuse back on the heads of those who come against you, so will be their punishment for their unrepentance. There's presence, there's a plan, there's protection. So finally, notice verse 4, Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Verse 5 says he not only took his family, he took all their possessions that they had gathered, all the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And you notice even in verse 5 how old Abram is in this moment, 75 years old. 
Some of you in here today are 75 years old or better. Do you have this kind of willingness, this kind of openness to forsake everything to follow God? You certainly know, don't you? God's not done with you yet. Even though it may seem from the worldly perspective your race is soon to be over, he's not done with his children. Here Abraham finally following God fully all the way through. And notice where God brings him, verse 6. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. The oak of Morah can be translated something like the teacher tree. In all likelihood, this would have been something of a tree that was a shrine to pagan deities, a shrine to idols. Well, what God is doing, if you have eyes to see, is bringing His chosen one right before the mouth of the enemy, right before the gates of the serpent, because you'll see verse 6 as it ends, at that time the Canaanites were in the land. Now kids, if you know anything about melodramas, in Genesis it was ever performed as a melodrama, this would be a time when you would hear something like, and the Canaanites were in the land, and you would boo or you were hiss because these are the enemies of God's people. And what has God said? That's where I'm taking you. Because that land will soon be mine. And it's from that land that I'm going to bless all of the nations. And Abram goes into the mouth of the enemy, reminding us that God's promises are very rarely brought about, brought into his people without difficulty, hardship, in opposition. September of 2002, Time Magazine ran an article that had this cover portrait accompanying the cover article, and it was this image, this painted image of an old man who had this wild white hair, leathery skin, something of a long yet craggly beard, and you kind of initially glance at the image and think, who is that character? What a wild dude. Then you look like at the second time, and sometimes those of you who love art know what I'm talking about. You, you see his eyes. And his eyes are painted in such a way that it's like, there's hope in those eyes. There's expectation in those eyes. And because, of course, we can, many of us, read to you, realize at the bottom of the cover image in bold, light yellow letters is the word Abraham. September of 2002, leading to an article that says, The Legacy of Abraham. A man, thousands and thousands of years later after his death, still dominating secular religious thought, partly because of what we see now in verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Something of a striking thing that happens in this text. Martin Luther said in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Abraham received the naked word of God. It was just God's word speaking out. But you see what he gets in verse 7? A theophany. An appearance of God there as he has come into the land of Canaan to comfort him as he's surrounded by these enemies, to strengthen him surely for his sojourning in the land. And God says... To your offspring, I will give this land. And what you see in the remainder of chapter 12 is something about how it ordinarily goes, this life of faith and following Yahweh, how it ordinarily goes. First of all, faith waits on the impossible. 
Abram is 75 years old at this time, and God has said, I'm going to give you a child, and their offspring is going to get this land. From all human appearances, such a promise would be altogether impossible, wouldn't it? Not merely because Abram is 75 years old. Skip back up to chapter 11, verse 30. What does it tell us about Sarai? Now she was what? Barren. She had no child. If Abram had told his family, his servants, Sarai is soon going to have a child, they would have laughed him out of his tent. There's no human reason whatsoever that Abram can expect that he's going to get blessing, but there is a heavenly reason, isn't there? It's the sovereign creator of the universe that says, you will get offspring who will get this land. It's the sovereign creator of the universe who says, this is my promise to you. So great is this promise that I'm going to appear before you to seal it in the assurance of your own mind. Faith waits on the impossible. Some of you I know are in here today waiting on something that appears to be impossible from an earthly human perspective. You do know, don't you, Abram waited 25 years for a child. Some of you have been waiting maybe decades for a promise of God. You do know, don't you, that Abram never received fully this land. In his lifetime, he never got the fulfillment of the promise. But the promise was still true, wasn't it? To your offspring, I will give this land. Waiting for something God knew he would not bring about in Abram's lifetime. Faith waits on the impossible. It also worships God everywhere. Don't you see this in verse 7 and 8 if you just glance through it as he continues to mosey about there in Canaan. He is setting up altars wherever he goes. Just look at the end of verse 8. There Abram built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Faith worships Yahweh. Faith calls upon the name of the Lord. And that's the Old Testament way that's often spoken of, this faith-filled worship of Yahweh, this prayer-filled desire to exalt and to adore God for who He is. In the fullness of Scripture, though, we know that calling on the name of the Lord is calling on the name of the true offspring of Abram, Jesus Christ, as Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says, anyone who calls on the name of Christ will be saved. Faith waits. Faith worships. And you'll see his nomadic life, if you just even notice in verse 8, he's going about pitching his tent. No permanent home. Like sojourners and exiles, we wander about on this earth towards the heavenly city that is to come. Abram indeed did forsake everything to follow God. Such was his faith. In many ways, I was weaned, I guess spiritually, weaned spiritually on missionary stories. The years of my youth were full of bookshelves that had missionary biographies. And I found it utterly captivating, these stories of men and women of centuries, decades gone by, who forsook everything to follow God's call on their life. And with each passing year, as I read these stories, yes, and more and more, conviction, more and more challenge in one's faith. And one of my favorite stories that I figured out actually quite late in my missionary biography reading was a guy named C.T. Studd. If you know the name C.T. Studd, Charlie Studd, as he would have been known in the late 1800s. He was the most popular and prolific cricket player in his time. So students, you would want to think of C.T. Studd as the LeBron James or Michael Jordan of cricket. That's quite a true analogy. 
He had a family of an immense wealth. Awaiting him at his parents' death was this incredible inheritance. He had the best education that the country could offer. He had the best friendships the aristocracy could provide. And then he set it all aside in 1884 because he said, God is calling me to carry Christ to China. Renouncing everything at God's call. And such has been the case, hasn't it, for God's children throughout the centuries, ever since Genesis 12. True faith, forsaking everything when necessary to follow God's call. And so as we begin to close, what I want to do is just bring out a couple truths from this text about God's call. God called Abram so many thousands of years ago. No doubt today he's calling some of you through his word and spirit, all of us in some way through his word and spirit to follow him in the fullness of faith. And what does that call exactly look like? Well, there are a couple of things true in God's calling of Abram that are still true of God's calling of anyone today. The first of which is God's call is personal. So kids, if you look down at verse 1 through 3 again, and your parents let you mark up your Bible, Circle all the times you or your appears. There's this kind of bursting forth of second person pronouns, like bombers flying out of the English countryside on the D-Day assault. Just notice verse 1 and 2. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing It's a personal call. Some of you are growing up in families by God's grace that aren't full of pagan deities and idols like Abram's family was. You have parents, children that are wanting to read to you the truth of Jesus Christ, pray for your soul, bring you to the Lord's Day service of worship in His church, surround you with the means of grace. The word of Christ, though, of course, is a call to you personally. Not to presume upon a place in the kingdom. Assume that you are indeed in the kingdom because of these privileges. They're blessings that are meant to call you personally. You must take up your cross and follow me and deny yourself, Jesus says. It's a call that's personal. The call, secondly, is total, isn't it? It's total. Your family, your country, your kindred, everything. Lay it aside and follow me, and you don't even know where you're going. You see that, don't you? Hebrews 13, I'm sorry, Hebrews 11 later on reflects on this and says, Abram went not knowing where he was going. You know, sometimes we'll take our children on, you know, a surprise trip or a surprise outing of sorts. And the minute that such an outing is announced with our six little children at home, there comes these volley of questions. Where are we going? What are we doing? What are we going to eat there? Are there bathrooms there? Is anyone else going to be there? What will we drink there? What time will we get back? Are we going to be able to sleep there? Nonstop. We need to know the information before we get going. (laughs) Abram, of course, didn't get any information, did he? I will be with you. I will bless the nations through you. Now go. Renounce everything in going. You know that Jesus says in Luke 14, 33, If anyone does not renounce everything, he cannot be my disciple. What might you need to renounce today? Lay aside, set behind you, that you might follow God's call. The call is personal. The call is total. It is merciful, though, isn't it? I've always wanted to ask this question. Why Abram? 
You ever want to ask that question? Why him? This idolater from the land of idols. Why him? We don't have to know the reason, do we? It's God's sovereign grace in choosing the patriarch of the faith named Abram. Isn't this what God always does in his call? Abram was an idolater. Jacob was a deceiver. Moses was a murderer. Jonah was a hater. Peter was a denier. Zacchaeus was a robber. Saul was a persecutor. You are a sinner. There is nothing the text tells us, is there, that Abram said to deserve God's call, that Abram did to merit God's call, but nonetheless, God called him because of his sovereign, tender mercy. Tender mercy that now comes to us in Jesus Christ, doesn't it? It's now Christ calling his people. The true seed of Abraham, the true offspring who will bless the nations, the Son of God who did what? Laid everything aside to come to redeem sinners like you and me. All of his rights and privileges at the Father's right hand in heaven set aside that he might come and save sinners like you and me. Live perfectly die sacrificially, rise victoriously. And so what does he say just before he ascends up into heaven? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and what? Bless the nations, discipling them in everything that you've heard from me. So true faith does indeed follow God fully. True faith is heeding a personal, total, and merciful call that comes to you in Jesus Christ, who is the true Son, of Abraham, in whom all peoples are blessed. I wonder if you're in that family today. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for tender mercy that falls on us like rain falls on undeserving stones, that you are building us up into a family of God as living stones, that we might indeed worship you and praise you. Call us into Jesus Christ this day. Give us the faith by the Spirit to renounce everything that we might truly be found in Christ, that we might be faithful disciples, that we might be a faithful community as we want to serve, as we want to adore you, as we want to bring blessing to all peoples. We pray that you would do this so you alone would get the praise, O God, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.